Tonight's reading is Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is God's word. My name's Phil, I'm the Associate Vicar here, and it's lovely to be bringing you this quite extraordinary passage tonight. Let's pray, and then we'll get on with it. Our Father God, how can we really grasp what is written of here? Help us, we pray, to understand deep theology, but also help us to be willing uh, to point our lives in a direction we don't want to point them, towards others, not self. We ask this for your glory. Amen. Now, when you put your trust in Jesus, as many here have done, it brings you into a relationship with God. We all know that. I guess even if you're not a Christian, you know that. But it also brings you into a relationship with others. This church becomes your family. The people around you are now your family, all of them, even the strangers you don't know, even the strange ones, all of them, the awkward, the annoying, everybody here is part of your family if you trust in Jesus. So how should you treat the people sitting around you? In one sense, that's the question Paul is addressing here. Now, we've seen this weekend uh, with the, the joyous panic buying. Um, I, I mean, I'd like to see a, a social experiment where they just pick random objects that nobody actually needs and says, there's a shortage of rubber ducks and whatever, and just watch the great British public. Who oh, must have them? And, I mean, it, we just seem incapable of controlling ourselves. But while it's vaguely amusing, it, w- the selfishness has been quite ugly. As there, a number of the reports have... I've noticed that uh, the people I've spoken to in the queues have said, I've got no great need for petrol myself, but well, I might do. And the attitude is basically, well, I might as well fill up in case there is a problem. And if it means a key worker can't get to work on Monday, well, it's not my problem, is it? Extraordinary selfishness. As soon as there's there's trouble, scarcity of resources, well, think about me. (laughs) I'm the only person who really matters. Well, God's word is going to challenge that selfishness that may not be quite so pronounced, but certainly exists in every single one of us. I know it does in me. 
But as well as challenging, as always, God's word is also going to lift our eyes to a much better vision of how we can live. We're going to see basically that we should serve others and leave the exalting to God. By nature, I want to exalt myself and be served by others. Philippians 2 says, no, 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 serve others and leave the exalting to God. Now, Paul's uh, writing the letter of Philippians to, as we've seen, one of the healthiest churches really in the New Testament, but they're not perfect. No church ever is because it's full of people like you and me. Works in progress. You have to confess our sins every week. And the particular issue that Paul addresses at the end of chapter 1, and then now again in chapter 2 and again in chapter 4, is unity. We saw it um, at the end of chapter 1 last week as he encouraged them that if they're going to conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, chapter 127, then you need to stand firm in one spirit and strive together as one for the faith of the gospel. Be united. Here in chapter 2, verse 2, which we just had read, Make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Then in chapter 4, verse 2, we'll hear it specifically applied, I plead with you, Odia, and I plead with Syntyche to, to be of the same mind, to agree with one another. Now, you'll have picked up that the, the tone of the reading was pretty gentle. It wasn't like Paul was giving them an absolute roasting for this. It's an issue in the church, but not yet a serious problem. We're not talking massive blow-ups. No one's punching each other or taking anybody to, church, uh, to court. But how do you deal with you know, just cliques developing, unresolved resentments, people just clocking where they are sitting and making sure I'm sitting as far away as possible? People not going beyond my own narrow circle of friends in my serving and my loving at church. How do you deal with that? Well, Paul's answer to a very practical, and let's be honest, a very common garden, ordinary issue is to launch into one of the deepest, most theologically rich sections of the entire New Testament. And as he does so, we'll learn what it means in practice to say, I, to live is Christ. And we'd be reminded why to die is gain. And also in this, uh, what is really a hymn of praise to Jesus, we find out why Christianity has such unique resources to create rich, deep community that bridges the divides of our world, divides of gender and of race and of politics and of class. Let's work our way through. So uh, the first thing we'll see is if you've received from God, humbly give yourself to others. Verse 1. Therefore, if you have received any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. What's going on there? Paul's beginning with the gospel in verse 1. What he does is he, he lists four blessings that anybody who puts their trust in Christ receives all of them. Firstly, the encouragement of being united with Christ. You get married, your finances are united. You share assets and pre-existing credit card bills, which you hadn't been told about. To become a Christian is to be united with Jesus Christ. Not by marriage, but by faith, a far deeper, more permanent bond. 
It means that all that Jesus has is now yours. His perfect status before God. His access to God. His relationship as a son of God. His eternal life. All of it is yours because you are in Christ. There's also the comfort of his love. In the gospel, our fundamental need for love, and it is a fundamental human need, it is met in a far deeper, richer way than any of us could imagine. As God the Father, who knows everything about you, everything, gives everything that he has to save you and welcome you. Thirdly, we share too in the Spirit the personal, permanent presence of God empowering us, assuring us of his love is now in us. And fourthly, we experience God's tenderness and compassion. Now that's interesting. He could have almost picked any two attributes of God here. But he goes to tenderness and compassion. And I think the reason is simply because if the church, that church, but also our church, is to be united, then we will need to learn to treat one another with the same tenderness and compassion that God has lavished on you. So four ifs, they've got the force of since. If, since you've received this stuff from God, do something. Uh, you'll know it's a gospel logic. Serving God comes after, in response to receiving from God. Now, the particular thing that uh, Paul wants the Philippians and us to do in response to all we've been given to God through Christ is set out in verses 2 to 4. And those of us who know we've been richly blessed by Christ need to sit up and take note. Then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests but each of you to the interests of others. Unity, not conformity, is not saying dress the same, think the same, lose yourself, be a sort of Borg-like, assimilated. No, he's, he's saying it's about humility, serving others in humility because we value them above ourselves. It's interesting. <laughs> unity doesn't come from working at unity. Unity comes from working at humility. The great African theologian of the fourth century, Augustine, was asked, what are the central principles of the Christian life? And he replied, they are first, humility. Second, humility. Third, you guessed it, humility. True humility, it's not groveling self-loathing, as Tim Keller put in his uh, short but very helpful book, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. It's not thinking less of yourself, oh, I'm a miserable person. It's just thinking of yourself a whole lot less. A previous minister here put it rather memorably. The attitude of Philippians 2 is not, here I am. It's, oh, there you are. There you are. Now, we can do that. Here I am. Look at me. Give me attention. We can do an aloud, extroverted, dominate the conversation. Everybody is just an audience for my jokes and, and, and to give attention to me. We can do it in that big, loud, obvious way. Or we can do it in a very a quiet, timid, very unassertive way. But where inside all my thoughts are just about me and how I feel and, and, uh, and whether I'm happy and, and, and how does this make me feel? Both are... Me, 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 just worked out in different personalities. 
But the simple truth we learn from the first four verses is that an essential part of living in a manner worthy of the gospel, as verse 27 put it, is stop thinking about me the whole time and value others and serve them. Great, but that's quite a big ask. So why? Why do it? Why is it that, as verses 1 to 4 put it, if you've become a Christian, if you've received forgiveness and eternal life from Jesus, you will stop thinking about yourself, and you will value others above yourself, and you will start to serve them. Why? Because the Christ, to whom we are united, verse 1, lived to pour himself out for others. And remember, he is the fullest human life ever lived, the freest human life ever lived. And he lived to pour himself out, as we'll see. Verse 5, follow Christ's example, humbly serving. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. What Paul is asking us to do here is not something God hasn't already done for us. God has already done it. And what follows are are some are really the deepest, most breathtaking verses of the New Testament. So we'll work through them carefully together just to, to grasp what they mean. It begins in the highest heaven and the mystery of the Trinity, verse 6. Um, Jesus Christ, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. God the Son was, is, and always will be fully God. Equally God with God the Father and God the Spirit. Not three gods, but one God in three persons. He is fully God. But God the Son did not view his divine status as something that gave him rights and power and privilege. Instead, he used his position to serve other people. Verse 7, rather he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. He doesn't stop being God, but he adds a human nature to his divine nature. It's a subtraction by addition. He becomes less by taking a human nature much like a beautiful car becomes less by taking a whole heap of mud smeared on it. He takes on a human nature. More than that, he became a servant or slave. Slavery is, in the ancient world, and just an extreme loss of all rights. That's why it's stressed here. He made himself nothing, literally emptied himself. He didn't cling to anything that was his by rights. Gave it all up for us. Verse 8. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. He went further still. He submitted himself to the humiliation of death. Not just any death, but the most shameful, degrading, agonizing death we humans have ever invented. When we were facing Eternal death, cut off from God because of our sins. When we are facing a terrible fate that we justly, richly deserved, God the Son did not hesitate to give everything he had to save you and me. Now the cross, well, it's described in many ways in the Bible. 
at its heart, it's the means by which the God-man Jesus saves us by taking our place and dying for us. But here in Philippians 2, Paul explains that the cross is also the example, the pattern for us to follow. As he focuses not on the achievements of the cross, but the attitude that took Jesus to the cross. Now that's what the verses mean, but I think it's, I just think it's too easy to miss how shocking they are. Uh, so imagine this, um, it was not too blasphemous. Imagine, imagine a couple of angels, just as God announces what he's going to do. Now, of course, no angel would speak this disrespectfully about God's plan. But great, finally, God is going to do something about those wicked sinners. I mean, all those humans have done since God gave them that beautiful earth to trash it and use and abuse each other. As far as I'm concerned, it's about time he did something. I'm looking forward to watching the fireworks. He's, he's not going to destroy them. He's going to save them. Why would he do that? They don't deserve saving. I mean, they're perverse and corrupt and selfish from the day they're born. I mean, see the way they're behaving crash for crying out loud. It's appalling. Okay, so which lowly third-tier angel is going to suffer the humiliation of being sent down there amongst them to save them? What an embarrassing job to be given. God the Son. God the Son is going to go down there. The, div the divine majesty himself will go down amongst them. Well, I suppose, you know, one glimpse of, of God the Son in his radiant brilliance, shining like 10 million of their sons, will have them all falling on their knees and coming back to God in repentance. What do you mean he's not going to be going in his divine glory? He'll be going as a human. He's not going to become... He's going to become physical. He'll have to eat and sleep and go to the loo. God the Son. Are you serious? Well, okay, maybe, maybe the humans are so stupid that they need to see a human. A great, mighty human king will lead them back to God. I can see the sense in that. Okay. Not a king, but a servant. A lowly slave. That makes no sense. Why would God do that? And anyway, how can he save them? How can he forgive them? The punishment for sin is death. That's clear. He's got to, he's got to destroy. He will die. An agonizing death. Their death in their place. That's divine madness. We're so familiar with it, but no human. No one would come up with a plan like that. Only God, only God would think of doing something like this. Now, none of us will ever be called on to die in the place of sinners to save all of humanity. That job has been taken. Putting the needs of others first will not involve that for you. But the pattern of all genuine loving service is giving self up to death, dying daily. This is the pattern for you and for me. Uh, the missionary Elizabeth Elliot wrote that whenever two wills collide, somebody has to die. 
Somebody has to die. She writes, life requires countless little deaths, occasions when we are given the chance to say no to self and yes to God and others. Death of my preferences, death of my ambitions, death of my sense of superiority, death of my comfort and my time, a thousand little deaths. You see, by, by nature, we look for ways to move up in the world. It's a great phrase. We're looking to move up in the world. Better finances, better job, better neighborhood, better circle of friends, maybe. To move up towards those things that we feel we deserve and that have something to offer us. Whereas Jesus looked to move down, down towards those in need, down towards those he could serve. And we follow Jesus when we move intentionally towards those who the world values little to serve them, not out of pity, which is so often superior, but because we've learned to value and love them the way God does. Follow Christ's example. Wonderfully, Jesus' story doesn't end with his body cold in the grave. And we learn at the end of the passage to follow Christ's example by leaving it to God to exalt. Verse 9. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Having gone lower than any human will ever go in service of others, Jesus is exalted to the highest place, the place he deserves. And one day... All will bow. Not all will bow willingly, but all will bow. And no one will be able to refuse to acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, one of the key things I think to notice about these last verses is the change in subject. Sorry if uh, your great passion in life is not English grammar, but notice the change of subject. Verses 6 to 8 are all about what Jesus does. He is the one who takes action. He takes a human nature. He humbles himself to death. The subject changes in verse 9. It is God the Father who raises him up and who exalts him. And there is a simple, oh so simple, but very critical principle here. And it's the reversal of every human instinct. And it's this. We do the humbling... We leave it to God to do the exalting. Easy to say, very hard to live out. We do the humbling. We leave it to God to do the exalting. 1 Peter 5 verse 6, Peter writes, Humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand, that he may in due time lift you up. Or Jesus' own words in Luke 14, 11, All who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves not will exalt themselves, but will be exalted by God. And again, Jesus is presented in this passage as a pattern. We won't be exalted and so that everybody bows before us and acknowledges we're Lord. That, again, that job is taken. That's Jesus, not you, not me. But the principle is that God's blessing and exaltation follow our service and sacrifice. The lower we go as we pour ourselves out to serve other people, the lower we go, the more genuinely we value others above ourselves and put their interests first. 
the higher, that God will exalt us. We saw every tract of service of others putting their needs first is a little death, an echo of Jesus' death. So also, actually, it's a little resurrection. As little bits of my sinful heart are put to death, so the beautiful resurrection of Christ Jesus shines through a little bit more. Now, I hope you see how radical the gospel is and how radical the kingdom of God is. The qualification for exercising power in the new creation, God's perfect new creation, will be willingness to humble yourself in the current creation and serve. But here, I think it's really, really important to notice the final phrase. Do you see how it ends? To the glory of God the Father. Jesus doesn't do it all. So one day, service is done. It's about time I exercise power for my benefit. Now, even his exaltation is for the glory of the Father. Even in the new creation, Jesus will be the servant king. The new creation will be a place where those with power have learned to use it to serve others. And if we get this, do you see how freeing this is? How wonderfully life-affirming this message is. It sets you free from the overpowering need to grasp power and and privilege and, and praise of other people now. Because we trust that God will one day exalt. And we've seen how wonderfully he exalted the Lord Jesus. It doesn't matter if no one else sees what I'm doing. It doesn't matter if no one else knows how much it cost me to do that. God sees. And while I'm busy humbling myself, I trust one day he will get busy exalting. It doesn't matter if when I serve, I'm treated like a servant by other people. Gosh, I wasn't planning on that. Not even thanked. For God sees and God will exalt and reward. We can get on with the humble serving when we see Jesus Christ's exaltation and leave the exalting to God for we know how well he'll do it. Look, as we close, let let me show you the the upside-down logic of the gospel. The upside-down logic of the gospel is that privilege becomes an opportunity to serve. Do you see how the, the gospel turns the thinking of our world on its head? See, the very things that in our world are reasons to avoid humble service, in the kingdom of God are reasons for humble service. Having power. Position, privilege, prestige. In the world, that means you don't serve humbly. But in the kingdom of God, those are reasons to pour yourself out for others. I think you really see it when you look at the parallels with John 13, when Jesus uh, puts some flesh on the bones of this and washes the disciples' feet. We've got a table which hopefully will um, pop up on the screen. So Philippians 2 on the left and then John 13 on the right. Philippians 2 on the left. Christ Jesus being in very nature God, John 13, we read, Jesus knew the Father had put all things under his power. Do you see both start with his position of exaltation? Philippians 2 continues, did not count equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, rather he made himself nothing, John 13. So he got up from the meal, took off his own clothing, and wrapped a towel round his waist. Philippians 2, by taking the very nature of a servant, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. John 13, and he began to wash his disciples' feet. 
In humility, value others above yourselves, Paul writes, not looking for your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. And Jesus says at the end of washing their feet, now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, so you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example. Isn't that extraordinary? The logic runs, I have all power, therefore I will serve. He washed Judas's feet. Now, the point is not that you only serve when you have a position of power. The point is you serve even when you have a position of power. Even those in power and seniority, especially them, should serve. Okay, what does it mean in practice? This is all principle that we're given here. Deliberately, you need to work out, in one sense, what this looks like in the reality of your life. But let's, uh, let's just think it through in a couple of directions. One thing it definitely doesn't mean is that you should be a doormat or, much worse, accept abuse. Neither of those things are a voluntary serving of others for their good. So this is not at all saying and cannot be used to justify someone staying in a situation of abuse or just being a doormat. Three things it does mean. One, when you come to church, you come to serve. Not to serve God, we come to receive from him. He's going to feed us in a moment at the Lord's Supper as we remember that we feed on his, his salvation. We receive from him, but we come to serve each other, the people around you. So pray before you come. There's a liturgy, the stuff we say at church. It really ought to start the night before or half an hour before as we all pray, Lord, help me see how I can be a blessing to others. Pray that before you get to church. It shapes who we sit with. Look out for newcomers rather than just my old friends. It shapes the conversations we have. I'm there to listen, not just to speak. It shapes when we offer to serve. It's not because I have gifts I need to exercise. It's, well, I want to meet the needs of others. We come to church to serve. Secondly, we think about the needs of others when it comes to preferences. So when we're discussing things like style of music or wearing of face masks or any of those things, my primary concern is not my needs, my wants, but what serves others. Thirdly, it means my status in society counts for nothing when it comes to serving. I think of a couple who, uh, who used to be here at CCM. Both had professional jobs, but the nature of the shifts they were doing meant that uh, they were, they were around irregularly. They were, it was never the same time each week. And they came to the church office and just asked quietly whether, look, would it be all right if we cleaned the church? We can't do it at the same time every week, but we thought that might be something we could do because as long as you don't mind it being done at different times each week, maybe we could clean the church. Would that be okay? No, we're professional people. That's not the kind of thing we do. It's wonderful, wonderful humility. Now, Jesus' example here is not designed to shame us. Who amongst us lives like this? How awful we all are. Now, his example is to inspire and empower us. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 3.18, As we contemplate the Lord's glory, 
we are transformed by the Spirit to be like him. As we marvel at, as we adore, as we worship the Lord Jesus revealed here in his humble glory, our hearts are drawn to follow that example. So look up to him and pray for change. Look out to others and start to serve. And pray with faith that you will experience the gospel's transforming power as you try to do that. And when we do recognize how far short we all fall in our petty selfishness and our silly pride, then let's remember that Jesus' humble death wasn't just an example. It was also a sacrifice that pays even for our failure to follow his example. How wonderful he is. I'm going to pray and then we are going to enjoy that forgiveness remind ourselves of that forgiveness as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Let's pray. Our Father God, we thank you. We praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he humbled himself for us, unworthy sinners like me. Father God, forgive us for the wickedness, the foolishness, the petty, silly, laughable pride that Resist serving some other people. Resist serving in some ways because we see it as beneath us. Help us to believe what you write here, that the richest, fullest way to live and the path of eternal blessing and glory is to pour ourselves out in service to others. Father, make us that kind of church by changing each of us for your glory. Amen.